Hello, everyone. Sorry, James. It's good to see you all. Roy sends his regards. He's at home watching Joshi, who's got a cold. Um, he's gone through three days of rats, and he doesn't have COVID, but uh, there's a bit of a cold going around his class. He's in foundation uh, in prep at school. And um, normally they have 25 children in the classroom, but apparently yesterday they only had 12 kids because they all caught this cold. Um, fortunately, um, he, he just has a bit of a runny nose today, but uh, we thought he would keep him home. So Roy's watching over him and Micah and I are well, so we're here. But um, just as a precaution, I won't hug anybody today. Um, but it's good to see you and welcome to those of you who are watching online. So a few Sundays ago, uh, we visited Ruth in Geelong, which was lovely. And after we, we spent some time with her, we decided to hop over to Torquay, which is not too far away. And um, they've got this lovely surf beach there with these inlets of water kind of streaming in. And the boys loved exploring the area, picking up the rocks. And one of the things that, of course, they decided to do straight away was to build a bridge um, across one of the little streams. And so then they worked very hard to gather all the rocks. And um, at first, Roy and I were very skeptical that they would complete the task, but they actually did <laughs> um, in, in the short amount of time we had there. And they built this little bridge. And it got me thinking about the power of rocks, how they can be used to hurt people or to help people. Because I have to confess that when they first picked up the rocks, I was like, oh, but then they went and, you know, built a bridge. And um, I just, it just made me think about how rocks have the power to be used to be thrown and to hurt people or to help people, to be used to condemn or to be used to connect. Do you remember Brian Stevenson, the human rights lawyer and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative in the U.S.? And I, I preached about him, um, I think, a few years ago. And in his book, Just Mercy, he shares about a woman, an elderly woman who he saw sitting in the courtroom several times. And at first he thought that maybe she was a relative of the defendant or the, um, you know, um, any of the people involved in the case itself. But after a few trials of noticing her in the courtroom. Finally, one day he went up to her and asked, excuse me, are you here Are you as a relative? You know, I've seen you a few times. And she said, no, I'm not a relative, but I come to this courtroom as often as I can. She said, you see, 16 years ago, my grandson was murdered by a couple of boys. And as I sat in that trial and heard the sentencing of those two boys to life in prison, she said, I thought it would make me feel better, but it didn't. And she said when she heard that these two young boys who had killed her um, grandson were going to be in prison, right, for 60, 70, 80 years, she said she just wept and wept. And she said that while she was weeping, a woman she had never met before just came and sat next to her. And she said... They did not exchange a single word, but that woman just gave her a shoulder to lean on. And she said for an hour, maybe two, she just cried on her shoulder. And she never learned this woman's name. But she had made such a big difference to her that after, you know, losing her grandson, um, who, you know, she loved very much and actually cared for, she didn't know what to do with her life. And, and she found herself coming back to the courtroom just to be there. For other people. She said, all these young children being sent to prison forever, all this grief and violence is a lot of pain. 
I decided I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones that people cast at each other. I heard you in that courtroom today. I've even seen you here a couple of times before. I know you're a stone catcher too. And, and Mr. Brian Stevenson was so moved by this woman that he tells her story in his book、um, and in the sermons he preaches because he's a Christian. And whenever he gets asked to preach at a church, he preaches often about the story found in John chapter eight, about a woman who was caught in adultery, and a bunch of people bring her to Jesus, wanting to stone her. But not only does Jesus say, "Let him who has no sin cast the first stone," making everyone eventually retreat, but he also says to the woman that he doesn't condemn her, that he forgives her. And he says, "Go and sin no more." And so Brian Stevenson tells that story of John eight, as well as the story of this woman. And he says in his book, "But today, our self righteousness, our fear, and our anger have caused even the Christians to hurl stones at the people who fall down, even when we know we should forgive or show compassion." I told the congregation that we can't simply watch that happen. I told them we have to be. Stone catchers, and so he uses that phrase that that old woman taught him about being a stone catcher. In an interview with Smithsonian Magazine,、um, he said, "There is no such thing as being a Christian and not being a stone catcher, but that is exhausting. You're not going to catch them all, and it hurts. If it doesn't make you sad to have to do that, then you don't understand what it means to be engaged in an act of faith. But if you have the right relationship to it." This less of a burden, finally, than a blessing. Are you a stone catcher or a stone thrower, a bridge builder or a bridge burner? Do you find yourself judging and criticizing, or listening and affirming? Being a stone catcher is hard, right? It is exhausting, as as Mr. Stevenson says. It is painful. It's sad. It's difficult. It takes time and effort to walk in someone's shoes, to understand where they're coming from. It requires the gift of presence and the wisdom to know how to say nothing. It's a lot easier to be a stone thrower, picking at the faults of others, pointing out the mistakes, dismissing them as unworthy, putting up walls of pride and prejudice. And a week out from the federal election, I see stone throwing a lot. And I'm sure you can, you hear it too, and you read it too, you see it too, and it does not inspire a lot of hope in humanity. The world is full of stone throwers, full of bystanders watching as stones get thrown. What we desperately need are stone catchers. What do they look like, and how do we become one? One of my favorite Christians in history is a man named Barnabas. Sorry, a man called Barnabas because that's actually not his name. We learn about him in the Book of Acts, written by Luke, a physician who accompanied the first Christian missionaries on multiple trips across、um, that area in the first century. His actual name was Joseph, but his nickname was Barnabas. Sorry, James. I'm just gonna move this because it keeps falling. There you go. Thank you.、Um, so we read in Acts chapter four. This is one of the first times we we see him. 
recorded in the Bible. It says that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is in the first century. This is right after Jesus has resurrected. There's now this group of people who want to go around and share the great news that Jesus is alive. And, you know, this new community that's forming, that is being persecuted uh, by others, kind of now have to depend on each other. And we learn a few things about Joseph. We learn, first of all, that he was a Jewish man who was living in Cyprus, an island in, around the Mediterranean Sea. And I think that's significant because perhaps as an immigrant, right, as a Jew living amongst um, the Romans and the Greeks, he understood how it felt to be ostracized, and he wanted to be somebody who built bridges. We find out that he's from the tribe of Levi, which was uh, the tribe amongst the Jewish people who were responsible for the sanctuary services. So their whole job actually was to be bridge builders between people and God, to help them come to God and to uh, make amends and to receive reconciliation. We find out that he's a generous man, right? The land that he owned wasn't from his surplus. It was part of his inheritance, and he sells it because he's all in, and he's He's committed to this community. He was such an encourager that even though his name was Joseph, he is called throughout the book of Acts and in the letters of Paul as Barnabas. It sticks to him, right? More than calling him Joseph, they just call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Other translations say he is son of comfort, son of exhortation. He was someone that the, the, the Christian leaders, as they're trying to make this new movement spread beyond the borders of Judea, he was someone that they could completely rely on. And as a pastor, I know how valuable it is to have those individuals that you know have not only commitment, but compassion. Not only are they faithful, but they're good, they're a good people person. It's such a rare combination. And when you, when you have that in your church community, it is gold because those are the people that you can trust um, to make the movement grow. And so the leaders of the church uh, looked at Barnabas, right, Joseph, and they said, oh, here is someone who we can um, really uh, utilize to spread the work of Jesus. And we see the proof of Barnabas's nickname in how he interacts with a man named Saul. Now, you might have heard of him before. Saul was a man who was an avid persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians so much that not only was he content with uh, imprisoning and persecuting those within Jerusalem and Judea, but he would go out far and wide traveling to capture them from wherever they had run away to, to bring them back to Jerusalem to try them there. But he has this dramatic conversion experience where he meets Jesus on the road, and so he becomes a Christian. But here's the thing. He had already persecuted and led to the death of many Christians. So the Christian community was not so welcoming of this new man. We find out in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. 
but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. You see, they're wondering, is he actually converted or is this just an act so that he can infiltrate our secret community, find out where we all are, and then expose us? Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Here is Barnabas doing what he is known for, being a bridge builder, right? Vouching for Saul, believing in him and his potential to be a witness, giving him opportunities to grow and develop in his natural and learned talents as a missionary. Imagine if Barnabas hadn't done that. What would have been the story of Saul, also known as Paul, because he changes his name? Imagine what the Christian movement would have been like if Barnabas had not made that effort for Saul. But Barnabas believed in Saul slash Paul so much that later on when the church sends Barnabas to Antioch, Barnabas decides, I need help, right? The church is growing. So he goes and gets Paul. We read about this in Acts chapter 11, news of how there was this new growing uh, community of Christians in Antioch reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them, once again, there's his name coming out, all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the first Christian church in history in Antioch, well, outside of Jerusalem, um, in Antioch, and it's the first multi-ethnic church, the first church that had Jews and Greeks and Romans and other individuals coming together because of their faith in Christ. And it's here that Barnabas decides that he's not going to do the work by himself. He's going to bring along someone to mentor. He brings Saul along un under his wings, and together they do ministry there. For many years, almost over 20 years, they worked together. They're mentioned together over 17 times in the book of Acts, including when they fundraise together, uh, when there's a great famine. Paul and Barnabas are the ones that kind of fundraise and bring the collection of money back to Jerusalem to help the people there. But they didn't always agree, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas had a young cousin named John Mark who joined them on their first missionary trip. But when things got tough, John Mark had bailed. And then we find out in Acts chapter 15 that sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So here we see Barnabas once again being a stone catcher. Yes, John Mark had failed before, but Barnabas wants to give this young man another chance. Paul on the hand? Nah. 
Paul's like, this is important work. We, we can't do this with someone who has already failed, right? Someone who, who has deserted us halfway through the mission and, you know, we don't know the full story, but something happened. And Paul's like, no way. No, I, I'm, I, you know, he wanted to take um, uh, along Silas. But Barnabas sticks to his guns, stands the ground, because being a stone catcher does not being a, mean being a pushover. He stands his ground and says, no, I'm going to champion and sponsor and, and, and put my eggs in with John Mark. He's saying, I believe we should give him another chance. So then they disagree so much, they part ways. Paul and Silas go on, and Barnabas and John Mark go a different way. Was this the end of their partnership? Not at all. When you read uh, the letters of Paul, we find out that in time, Paul saw that Barnabas had been right about John Mark. After Barnabas was martyred for his faith, tradition says that he was stoned to death, Paul took John Mark under his wing. We know this because in AD 61, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he says in Colossians 4 verse 10, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So by this we know that Paul and uh, John Mark have reconciled. Again, at the end of his life, writing to another one of his kind of mentees, Timothy, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. So here's the aged Paul, right? Imprisoned in Rome, writing his final letters, and he's missing John Mark. He's saying, bring John Mark because he's someone that I need in my ministry. Would that Barnabas' encouragement, would that have happened? Without Barnabas, will we have the gospel according to Mark, which is one of the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible? Early church historian Papias says that the book of Mark that we have today was authored by John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And this is the book that we're going to be exploring in June with our daily nuggets together. John Mark also went on to establish a church in Egypt and it's one of the oldest churches today, meaning they have, um, from, from this, you know, first century when John Mark established it till now, it's been a continuous commu Christian community. It's one of the oldest continuing Christian communities in the world. All because Barnabas believed in this young man. But Barnabas was human too. He made mistakes. And the Bible doesn't give us inflated accounts of individuals and followers of God. It tells us plainly about the many mistakes and the failings of individuals. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes the Bible so real and so authentic, is that it doesn't just give us, you know, um, these super individuals who do all these amazing things. But no, it, it tells us the real, the gritty, the ugly. And it shows the grace of God shining through despite our failings. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes about how Christians, Jewish Christians in his day, were kind of being hypocritical because they knew that through Jesus there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, uh, slave or free. But sometimes Jewish Christians still struggled with the traditions 
that they had been taught for so long about, for example, not eating and sitting with the Gentiles, right? Because that would defile them. And he says um, in Acts chapter 2, oh, sorry, this should, it should be, it should say Galatians chapter 2, I apologize. Galatians chapter 2, that when men from James who were in Jerusalem arrived, he, this is Peter he's talking about, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Right? This is Barnabas, the bridge builder, who is all of a sudden separating himself from the Gentiles because of the Jewish people from Jerusalem, and he's kind of afraid that they'll judge him. And I kind of find comfort in this glimpse of Barnabas's mistake, of Peter's humanity. Because the truth is, Christians make mistakes all the time. Right? We all fall short of the ideal. But should we give up then? Should we throw stones at each other? Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John Mark all had moments of disagreement and failure and shortcomings. But they found forgiveness and acceptance and reconciliation in Christ. Because Jesus is the ultimate bridge builder and stone catcher. He believes in us despite all of our shortcomings and failures. And he reconciles us to God and to each other. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, For Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both to them through God, to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Continuing on, verses 18 to 22. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, when Jesus died for us on the cross, he didn't just reconcile us to God. The cross, people often say, has that vertical beam connecting us to God, but also that horizontal beam reconciling us to one another. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only provided forgiveness of our sins towards God, but he also provided a way that we could forgive one another, a way for us to connect. And that's, that was the beauty of the Christian church, right? The church in Antioch, the first multi-ethnic church, where whether you are male or female, Greek or, or Jew or Roman or any other ethnicity, whether you were a slave or whether you were a land you know, owner with a lot of wealth, in church, through Christ, they became one family. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The Greek word that's translated blessed 
can also be translated as happy. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Happy are people like Brian Stevenson, who through blood, sweat, and tears give people back their freedom, their families, their lives. Happy are people like Barnabas, who champion and mentor people into their full potential. Happy are those who accept Jesus' sacrifice and example of being a bridge builder and stone catcher. I want you to think about who you can have that bridge building experience with this week. Who do you need to say I'm sorry to? Or perhaps who needs you to be that shoulder to lean on without words, without agenda? Who needs your help or guidance? Who needs a second chance? How can you be a son or daughter of encouragement? When I was, Micah turned nine this week, and I was one thinking, man, I can't believe it's been nine years, right? How time has flown. And then I was thinking about, man, what was I doing when I was nine? I'll tell you what I was doing. I was learning the English alphabet. Our family had moved uh, from South Korea to, to the U.S. when I was Micah's age. And I didn't know the, even the alphabet. And so the first few years of being in America was really tough. I, I, the whole time of being in America was tough, but especially when I didn't understand the language. And I remember, you know, I, I, so I went into grade three, and I remember um, doing my best to understand, keep up, but one of the hardest things was when I had to speak or read out loud. The teacher would just call on us to read out loud. And I, and I remember the book because that's how traumatic it was. <laughs> um, it was it was actually The Little House in the Prayer, which I love now. But at the time, I was like, oh, this book talking about like bulrushes and like badgers and ground. I was like, what? What is these things? Like, I don't, we don't have that in, in Korea. And so the, all these words I didn't understand, all these words that were hard to pronounce, and I remember the teacher, every time she called on me to read out loud, I would just blush from head to toe, start sweating, fighting back tears, like stammering. The kids would laugh, hated it, hated it. And, you know, we would bring home report cards and I would have A's and everything except for oral language is what they called it. Uh, it's different here in Australia, but in America, you got grades like from, you know, the beginning of the first year onwards. So I'm in grade three and I'm bringing home this report card and I would have a C in oral language. Um, and I hated that. And I hated giving that to my parents and seeing, you know, the concern on their face that I have this one C. And um, the, the teacher would have a comment next to that section saying, Jinha needs to uh, work on speaking she needs to, um, I see my notes here, I've lost my place. Uh, here we go. She said, um, Jinha needs to speak up more in class, needs to work on doing presentations. And it didn't matter how great my other grades were, that oral language grade, every quarter, in, in America we get quarterly report cards, every quarter would just crush my soul. <laughs> well, in grade five, so after two years of being in the U.S., we moved from California to the other side of the U.S., to a tiny little village in uh, Pennsylvania. And I was the only minority in the entire school. <laughs> and I remember um, going to that, that class, going to that school, 
And of course, I'm new to this place and feeling scared. And I met my teacher, Miss Lumen, and she was the most glorious being because not only was she incredibly friendly, but she made me feel like I belonged in the classroom. She did not call on me during class, but she taught us all how to love literature. I remember she would read to us、um, "Where the Red Fern Grows," which is a phenomenal book, highly recommended. And she would read to us, and I remember all of us would like be in deep tears by the end of that book, you know, <laughs> because she just made us love reading, listening to her reading. She taught us how to write poetry, and she, I remember her. Look, reading my poems and encouraging me to submit them to, to the school newsletter because she said they were really good. And you know, when I look back and read them now, they're full of grammatical mistakes. But that's not what she saw. And so there was my poem published in the school newsletter, and it was this new experience of feeling like I had something to contribute to the world. She was working on a master's、um, during that time, and she asked my parents if if I would spend extra time with her outside of class because she was doing a master's project on English as a second language. So of course my parents said yes. So then I got extra time with Miss Lumen after school, where she would go over、um, certain vocabulary and other、uh, pronunciation skills with me. When I got my first report card with her that quarter, for the first time. I had an A in oral languages, and in the comment section, she had written, "Jinha does an excellent job speaking and presenting." And I'm like in tears now because if she could see me now, right? I do public speaking all the time, <laughs> and it's all—it's because she believed in me. I remember being this shy immigrant who was scared to even be noticed in class. To now being confident, to making all these new friends and feeling like I belonged in that community. That's when I started reading and writing and loving doing that and wanting to teach myself. And it's because of her that I am a pastor today. Right, her and many many other people who have encouraged me along the way. And I wonder who has been that person in your life. How can you thank them and appreciate them this week for making that impact on you? And if you're struggling to think of someone, I want to suggest to you to take a moment this week to truly appreciate Jesus, the bridge builder who believes in us, the stone catcher who was bruised for our iniquities. And wounded for our transgressions, because he believes in what we can contribute to this world. Hebrews chapter ten says, "Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart." And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. I long for the day when Christians are once again known, not for being judgmental or hypocritical, but for being compassionate and committed. I pray for the day when we pick up stones not to hurt each other or to threaten, but to build bridges, to build communities, to create. I pray that in small and big ways, that we too would become stone catchers, championing, supporting, defending those who are vulnerable, being bridge builders to connect people to Jesus by being individuals who truly can be the light and salt of this world. And during this time when so much politics and so much hatred and division seem to be all around us, that we can show the world a different way, a different path, a way to truly be stone catchers and bridge builders. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for providing a way that we can be reconciled to you and each other. And we pray for courage and wisdom and humility to be bridge builders and stone catchers. And we recognize, Father God, that it's hard work. It's not easy. We might get hit in the process. But Father, help us as we think about Jesus and Barnabas and the many others who have been in our lives and who have set the path before us in history. Help us to be inspired by their example and to take those small steps to make a difference in someone's life today by being a shoulder to lean on by being present, by being a voice to those without one. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into our discussion time and tease out a bit more of what this means, that you would challenge us, motivate us, and give us opportunities to be like you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.